0: Minneapolis Media Group proudly present to you the
1: Lone Gunman Podcast featuring your host Rob Clark, where research comes to shine and myths come to die. Stay tuned, be
0: right there.
1: What is up, everybody, and welcome to the show. This is the Lone Gummin' Podcast, backed by popular motherfucking demand. Got a great show for you today. I got an old friend returning to the show. That's right. I'm sure you've heard of him before. Fresh off of his stint, doing a little talking down in Dallas, is my friend, author, Carmine Savastano, author of Two Princes and a King, and proprietor of the Neapolis Media Group. Carmine, how are you, sir?
0: I'm doing great, Rob. Glad to hear you back.
1: Well, it's good to be back, I think. Uh, <laughs> we'll find out. You know, I'm still working through these technical difficulties, as you can tell.
0: Well, I think everything's going to work out. But like I said before, it's great to have you back, and I know that a lot of people are happy, and... I'm sure there are some mythmakers that are not.
1: <laughs> yeah, well, screw them. So <laughs> Sorry they don't like it. You know, it's nice to have an, you know, to hear people that have an honest opinion that that'll that'll tell the truth about people instead of just kissing their ass based on stories, you know.
0: Mhm. Yeah, it's it. unfortunate. Yeah, and I know you've, you know, you and some of the people that you know i've also got to work with like chuck and mike swanson larry hancock uh, you know i know you guys have seen as overwhelmed as i was when i first came into all this you know back a few years ago i can only imagine like with larry imagine having to watch every bad idea since the 60s <laughs> yeah
1: uh i'm surprised he's still alive you know having to having to go through all that.
0: <laughs> yeah or, or mentally not, that's like, got to be exhausting
1: or not in a little padded cell somewhere you know um, so props to, props to the OG original researchers, although most of them, well, I won't say most, I might, you know, a lot of them old school uh, oh. guys might have a little crazy theories as well. I mean, we've heard them all. Um,
0: and, yeah, the original what, Robert Morrow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
1: I mean, you know, one thing time does bore out is some of the, you know, more ridiculous theories that uh, are mm-hmm. quite apparent to us now thank you to technology and uh, other resources that we can point to that, you know, can say, hey, you know, maybe it wasn't a driver that turned around and shot JFK or maybe somebody wasn't dressed up as a tree on the grassy knoll shooting, um, you know, (laughs) things like
0: that. Yeah, random groups of men with guns just wandering around firing everywhere. (laughs) Yeah,
1: I mean, I can imagine Dealey Plaza, you know, there was like, you know, 15 to 20 shooters and, and like 50 spotters and you know everybody there was in on it and uh,
0: and if you'd like to hear other great ideas from james Fetzer <laughs> <Huh>. yeah
1: <laughs> you know ruby was an fbi guy named james Bookout, and
0: uh you know i mean this is yeah yeah that's yeah you've got some trying to do that now
1: <laughs> well yeah surprising enough uh, you know even judy had enough common sense not to have that idiot at her conference you know uh, talking about that. <laughs> Might be a hey, while well,
0: ch- <laughs> yeah, apparently, apparently she has some standards. <laughs> yeah.
1: And that's saying a lot, a lot. Okay. Carmine. Well, look, let's do a little, uh, let's do a little, uh, shout out here at the beginning before we actually get into some stuff. Um, you can hear Carmine also over on American Freedom Radio on the Ocelli Effect as well. Just about what is it every Thursday night?
0: Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, every Thursday. And actually, now they don't have to go to American Freedom Radio; they can go to uh, Ocelli dot com. Oh, okay. And it'll all yeah, it'll all go through there. I believe American Freedom Radio still carries some of the shows, but yeah, now it's pretty much at the website. And then he's got uh, you know, and he's got affiliates like you do. Like you guys have dark mist, so I think that, and of course the N.A.S. Media Group, which I'm happy to hear every time I hear your show. <laughs> yeah, but uh, but yeah, uh, and yeah, you, they can hear me over there on Thursdays. Um, and I'm glad to be returning back to your show, and I'm going to be uh, another show that you've done before. Uh, I, I was talking to him the other day. Hopefully around February, I'm going to get to do uh, pirate radio. Oh, okay. So yeah, th- those guys are cool, and. And I, ch- I'll bring it up real quick. Just I don't when I find out exactly where it's going to be appearing, and I'll put it on YouTube. While I was done in Dallas, I also got to do uh, an interview show for TV. So once I That's once cool. I get that, yeah, I'll put that out and show it to everybody. It was actually it was, I don't want to like jump ahead, but uh, you, well, you know what, it happened before the conference. So I, I suppose it's chronologically correct. So yeah, I went there, and you know I got to talk to some people like Jefferson Morley and that. But surprisingly, Dave Perry was there. And Dave Perry, yeah, is known as they they called him a master debunker. And he's known as, you know, somebody who once believed in conspiracy but now doesn't. But with the stuff we were talking about, I was just happy. And hopefully, when people see it, they'll be happy to see that he basically doesn't disagree with most of what we say because none of us are saying anything crazy. You know, there are no 16 shooters. (laughs) We're just like one of the things I said is nobody has the definitive evidence right now. And I know a lot of people on the official side don't like to admit that, but that's the truth. Yeah, it's hard know, to until argue. You know, either side has. The, uh, I'm sorry. Go
1: ahead. Uh, it's just. I mean, it's hard to argue when you have primary source documentation, and you know that's why a lot of these guys just go after the easy, the easy targets. You know, mm-hmm. like the Sinkays and the Fetzers and uh, Liftins and, and all these other guys.
0: Well, yeah, there's there's a lot of people that, you know, they want to say that they have that. It, and that doesn't seem to be have changed much either, because I know, you know, long before most of us got into it, there were people who said that they had this solved back in the 60s. Oh,
1: yeah. And they
0: clearly did. No,
1: they you know, clearly but we did
0: not. <laughs> there's yeah, there's always going to be another person that says, well, I'm the key to everything and I have all the answers. I don't have the evidence. And that's where they always fall apart. So, you know, I, I would warn people to always look for that. If they don't offer you that smoking gun piece of evidence that you can go and verify independently, then they don't have the keys to the case. They're just making stuff up to get your attention.
1: Good golden rule to live by when researching this case, for sure. But so, yeah, I mean, yeah, definitely uh, had a blast with with uh, Jaffe and and the, and the guys over at Pirate Radio. And I did them last year for their JFK special, which you can find on YouTube somewhere.
0: I linked it. I linked it to the NEMG, uh interview appearances. So at the Neapolis oh, okay. Media Group account, you can find Rob's interview.
1: Sweet, yeah, that's out there. That was basically basically a primer for those guys, you know, because a lot of those guys aren't really heavy into it. So, you know, it was nice for you know to dispel some you know commonly held myths on their show about a lot of stuff, and, and blow some minds over there. And, uh, of course, also everybody, if you're not checking out Doug Campbell's show, the Dallas action, I don't know what you're doing. Uh, they've been going through a lot of the new files over there and, uh, coming up with some very, very cool stuff. And, uh, I was on his show a couple weeks ago and we got into some stuff and, uh, you know, definitely be checking that out. And also head over to my friend S.T. Patrick's show, the midnight writer, uh, podcast. You can find that their stuff at Midnight Midnight Writer, not writer, writer, com. So check that out. They're doing some good interviews over there, um, great shows, and uh, so, yeah, definitely check them out. So, now, I want to have Carmine back, because, of course, Carmine, we've had a lot of document releases, which is like your bread and butter, in, in the past <laughs> six months, and, uh... We're gonna be talking about a lot of that stuff today, and and see if we found anything worth uh, worth discussing. So uh, let's get right into it, my friend.
0: Okay, okay. So uh, do you uh, do you care if I uh, real quickly just talk about the conference a little bit?
1: Oh no, no, please do. Please do. Okay,
0: I, I, I'll figure. I'll go from that. I'll jump into something I found back in August, and then get into the new documents. So, uh, please, everyone, bear with me. the The older document thing might take a little bit, but I'll go through the conference fairly fast. So, yeah, basically, I was talking. So hold Robert on, hold
1: a on, Carmine. Did you have fun at uh, Did you have fun at Judy Baker's conference?
0: <laughs> nice. Well, no, because it was <laughs> blocks away from where I was the whole time.
1: Oh. <laughs> Oh, you no, I were went to Lancer. the Lancer
0: conference. You know? Oh, you at Lancer. <laughs> I thought you spoke at Judy's hear... conference. Oh my God! <laughs> no, but I did hear there were fireworks there. I was sorry to miss them. <laughs> yeah,
1: me too. And boy, I wish I could talk about it right now. I'm just waiting for confirmation.
0: <laughs> so, uh, yeah. So, I, you know, I had a lot of fun. I could have used some more sleep, but that's what those conferences are for—is basically getting that much sleep and trying to oh, talk yeah. to as many people as you can.
1: Late nights, so, early mornings, lots of drinks. Yep, I know it.
0: <laughs> so it was, it was cool to meet Chuck Ochelli and Mike Swanson. You know, especially after talking with them for so long. And it is definitely on my life plans to meet you as soon as I can, sir, and everybody in the Apple's Media Group. Well, you um, know,
1: uh, Carmine, there's another conference coming up, coming up in March, and it's about <laughs> 45 miles away from me. Um, oh, really? Yeah, all you got to do is come right down to Dulles Airport and, and hop off the plane, and I'll be there. And we can go to the conference together. That would be awesome.
0: <laughs> I think I know what conference you're talking about. <laughs> yes. The uh, the round two conference that's going to be happening in March, apparently.
1: Yes, the JF, the JFK Historical Group is putting on another historic conference in D.C. starring the likes of roger stone judas barry baker phil nelson i mean the list goes on and on i mean it's star studded dude i'm telling you we, we, we don't want to or miss Ryan, it.
0: i'd say more rhinestone studded but <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah that's gonna be Rib, for your pleasure <laughs> that is going to be an interesting gathering i'm sure
1: you know it's so close dude i'm like i'm i really want to go i mean i don't think i don't think denton will foot the bill like he did last time but i'm just wondering if uh if i should even bother going or if they'd even let me in the door
0: exactly security That, that was one of the reasons because as you know chuck wanted to stop by just to see what the circus looked like but that was one of the reasons why uh I didn't go over there because I just figured security would grab us as soon as. <laughs> I'm sure there were wanted posters on all yeah. the walls.
1: <laughs> Ed tetros is a security guard waiting at the door. No, no, you can't come in here.
0: Hey, is that book? <laughs>
1: Pocket? <Park your car laughs> Have you been over reading there. about
0: facts? <laughs> you need to leave all your evidence outside of the conference, please. <laughs>
1: <laughs> no recording devices at all. <laughs>
0: but yeah, so. Yeah, so that was going on uh, Yes, needless to say I didn't make the the circus (laughs) And And you didn't uh, run into any of the
1: uh, the, Into any of the Facebook crazies, like out in the Plaza anywhere
0: uh, No, but Chuck and Mike told me that they later Because I'd leave early on Sunday But they ran into a couple Of those guys And, you know, just also the random guys That are just trying to sell newspapers and stuff down hey, deal the I'm plasma. Marty Eichler.
1: Nice to meet you. <laughs> 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 I'm an asshole on Facebook, but in real life, I'm not that bad a guy.
0: Do you have to bring up the one that's in my state?
1: <laughs> Sorry. I know he's a frequent visitor. I'm sure he was wandering around there sometime.
0: I wouldn't be surprised. Well, that was one of the things. Yeah, so uh, so on the first day... Um, I got a chance to hear John Newman talk. Then I uh, got to talk briefly with Bill Simpich and Newman. And, you know, as you know, I do you know the cryptonym research, which they do, and Larry Hancock and Matthew Shuffley. So it was cool to get to meet some of those guys and talk to them a little bit. Um, I got to see Dale and Malcolm Blunt speak about the JFK records later the first night. Um, next morning, I spoke to a largely enthusiastic audience, as I told you about earlier, uh, about official and public myths. I covered some ground that's familiar to the listeners that we just had a little banter on for about five minutes there.
1: <laughs> <Yeah>.
0: <laughs> did among you inter- my topics. Did
1: somebody actually, like, introduce you before you went up on stage? Yeah.
0: yeah, Larry introduced me. Larry did? Yeah, Larry Hancock.
1: Did he say, please welcome Mr. Carmine? Sorry, <laughs> go
0: ahead. <laughs>
1: Trust me, you it, it's funny when you when you hear it back. I don't know if you could hear that or not.
0: No, I couldn't hear the, the, the drop but I'm I'm looking forward to hearing it when it comes out.
1: Okay. It was it was kind of a <laughs> long one. It was just Larry Larry Hancock speaking a little Italian in between your name.
0: <laughs> <laughs> nice. I've told people about the shirt you want me to get to sometime. I'll have to talk to you more about that.
1: Oh, dude, we can make it. I got the I got the app. We can get, we can order it off Snap T anytime you want.
0: <laughs> but uh uh yeah. <laughs> I'll always remember that when you said that. So but uh then I went to, later in the day I went to Chuck's Beach. And it was really cool. You know, he had a supportive audience and everybody was talking pretty enthusiastically afterwards. And then I got to see uh, Bill Simpich and they talked about the mock trial that they had in Houston, which I would suggest people can find on YouTube. That's a, it was another interesting thing that went this year. It was a hung jury, but I think that is the worst that those who support conspiracy can expect because there's just so much evidence for reasonable doubt if we actually use criminal standards.
1: Well, yeah. And I think that's
0: why the commission couldn't use it. Besides Oswald being dead, that's one reason, of course, he can't have a trial. But normally, as you've seen with—I uh, can't remember—was it the Aaron? And I suppose it depends state to state. But the Aaron Rodriguez case, where he, you know, he killed himself so that he wouldn't be found guilty, so that his family wouldn't have their monetary rights taken away. So a similar thing would hold with Oswald's death; he can't be tried, thus the presumption of innocence holds. He's assumed to be innocent because he didn't have a trial. Now, I know people don't like to hear that or support the commission, but that is the way the law usually works. But if you lower the standards and use the commission standards, then you can start to change things.
1: Well, were they hypothetically reasoning that Oswald is alive during this mock trial?
0: I don't know. I don't. I think they were just acting based on what, you know, If if the standards were raised back to where they should be. What could the prosecution, and I think the prosecution was limited in some things too, like they couldn't have the you know just decades of firing that the officials have had from investigation to investigation, trying to label Oswald as the only possible suspect. So yeah, they, in this case, we actually, out, uh, you sure. know,
1: you know, because um, I always thought you know there's a lot of that. It... First and second day evidence from the, that the Dallas police handled that probably wouldn't be admissible in court due to chain of evidence or chain of custody. You know, you know what I mean. Like, there's yeah, a, a yeah. lot of doubt that can be thrown on, you know, the bullets and the rifle and and all that stuff. So,
0: yeah, yeah, the boxes, the fingerprints. You know, the stuff they said that they've... And if you look in their files, too, they admit that it was a day-to-day thing. Like, they didn't do everything they were supposed to on the first day, so they went back the second day, realized that photographers had been all over the place and reporters had been in there moving stuff around and setting it up for shots. So that was oh, yeah. all tainted.
1: Uh, you said taint. Um. <laughs> <laughs> nice.
0: <laughs> so... Yeah, I mean, well, we all know that was uh, Malcolm,
1: Mac Wallace's fingerprint, you know, on the box anyway, so...
0: I'm <laughs> or so Judith Baker and Roger Stone yeah. Would have us believe
1: <laughs> Yeah I can't believe that Oh Okay
0: Yeah, For anyone mouth. that yeah gets confronted with the Mac Wallace thing uh, Look up Joan Mellon <laughs> LBJ yeah. book we'll, we'll bring up her book uh, Where yeah she Went and actually got the original fingerprints That showed us in Mac Wallace
1: And a real certified expert
0: Which is mm-hmm. important indeed you want to have somebody who knows what they're doing not just somebody who's guessing <laughs>
1: hey so was did you see gary king at the conference at all
0: i i did i saw him i think the, i caught the end of his speech i was waiting for the for uh the next event um but i'm trying to remember is that the guy who um was one of the people who supported beverly oliver back in the day
1: no, no, Gary King. That's Fetzer's buddy. He does the radio show with Fetzer. <laughs> Gary King.
0: Oh, no, yeah, no, no. I didn't. I didn't even know. Yeah,
1: gauntly looking, bald guy. Loves to eat peanuts and 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 uh, shove nuts in his pockets for later. You didn't see him? No, yeah. Wearing a real deal shirt.
0: Hmm. You didn't
1: see him? I, no, I, I didn't.
0: Did <laughs> I I did not have the opportunity to see him. though. No. Oh
1: man. He has like a 1990s DAT recorder, like this looks like a brick that he sits on his desk while everybody's talking. You didn't see him down there.
0: No, who I -hmm. did see was uh, Mara was down there with a cameraman. Oh, really? Yeah.
1: Well, he's important enough to have one, so that's that's. (laughs) Documenting.
0: Uh, That was just surprising because yeah, the year before he wasn't doing much, and then this year he had a cameraman. (laughs) (laughs)
1: <laughs> oh.
0: so, so on, uh,
1: you, know, you had a you had a good time at the conference this for the second year in a row yeah
0: yeah no it, w- it was really cool and uh, you know i got to meet more people this time i knew what i was doing a little bit better and you know it, i knew the area a little bit better um it was, you know, the, I got to see, like I said, a bunch of different speeches, you know, people like Larry Hancock, Bill Simpich, John Newman. They did a tribute, uh, uh, Stu Exler, I got to see, too, who I know you had on the show with that really interesting episode about Oswald's library card. Oh, yeah. And, uh, yeah, they did a good, tr- uh, a, a nice tribute to Sherry Feaster, you know, who uh, the listeners don't know passed away, uh, and that was Deborah's sister and a forensic expert, one of the few... Real scientific uh, forensic experts that has contributed a lot of modern information that we can use that's useful. So yeah, it was lost, nice to see that. We've and
1: lost quite a few this year, you know. I mean, did you see uh, Robert Oswald just died?
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: Yeah, Lee Oswald's brother yeah, they, passed away November 27th.
0: Yeah, that was, I mean, you know, it's, and he was older, but. Uh, you know they're all I'm sure getting to a lot of the witnesses anyway because I can't think that you know we luckily do have some you know witnesses left but a lot of them are gone and a lot of the officials are gone for the most part
1: yeah they're getting up there in age and so are these you know some of the researchers as well you know which always sucks but
0: exactly that's That's why we got to get as much done as yeah we got to get as much done as we want and it's also I think important to note that You know, some people want—unfortunately, some people want this to be solved by the time they die, and I know we both do, Rob, but that might not happen. I'm hoping that's not the way it is. I'm hoping that, you know, we will get some more of the connective tissue from a lot of these new documents and make some of the big questions come into clarity. But we also have to realize that, you know, this is—historical research is a centuries-handing-down thing. You know, we're still looking into ancient Rome, so— we're going to be looking to this a while still, but I think we can get some big answers at least in our lifetime.
1: Yeah. Well, fortunately we got a little bit more technology than ancient Rome had.
0: <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And well, and that's, I think the big difference too, between even the, you know, the seventies and the eighties and the researchers of the nineties and currently that, you know, tech has made it so much easier instead of having, you know, like Mary Farrell or Harold Weisberg have to build an addition under our houses so we could put all the files in there.
1: Oh, no, something they would be destro- destroyed by a fire in a matter of seconds, you know, just paperwork after mm-hmm. paperwork after paperwork, you know, but we all and stand then, yeah. on their shoulders and here we are today. And that's why I always, you know, say how important it is that, you know, look, like people like me and Carmine and Doug, you know, we're relatively young, for, you know, to be in this scene. Like, I know, I know you, you know what I'm talking about. If you go to a conference, <laughs> you know, it's like going to a uh rest home you know sometimes uh, as far as all the corpses propped up in there but um that's just the way it is that was more,
0: yeah well this and one of the things i wanted to mention too that was important is uh there are actually some young people this year which i thought was great i only saw a couple last year but i actually saw you know a few teenagers i saw a kid with their parents so we are making progress yeah and it's because of you know shows like rob show and you know Chuck's show. There's a lot of shows out there that really do, you know, get new people's interest, which is important. We have to engage not just the the public but also younger people because, you know, it's not it's not a good thing when you go to a conference and Mia Rob is one of the youngest people. Yeah, you want to definitely have that next generation there too. Yeah, And they kind of look at you like,
1: who's this little young whippersnapper? Thinks he knows everything. <laughs> I've been looking at the case for fifty-four years.
0: Yeah, well, as you know, that's one of the things that uh, some people online like to say too—is as if it's a seniority battle.
1: Yeah. But excuse me, sir. I know you've been looking at the case. For, have you ever been on a computer in the past twenty years? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, that. even
0: yeah, or looked at the new documents. I mean, okay, if you can't use a computer, have you printed out the new documents? Of no,
1: I read books, Sonny. I know. <laughs>
0: And well, yeah, you know, to that's what, not, not to all everyone's uh, happiness, but I know that some people don't like that I always try to go back to documents every time. But I think that's what we have to do because then there's no interpretation. That's the problem with just reading books. I think some people's books are great. I think, you know, of the maybe five or ten I've read when I've gotten them, you know, suggestions from you or Chuck or someone that I trust to suggest a book to me, I'll read it. But for the most part, I stick to the documents just because no one's interpretation gets in the way. You see exactly what was said.
1: Exactly. And that's that's the way it it needs to be, you know, from here on out, I think.
0: You know, books are great. Yeah, forgotten.
1: But uh, it's nice to have things, you know, in your hand or on your screen that you can – point someone in, in the direction to and just really they can't argue about it like you were saying with uh, dave perry you know guys like that they you know they can bad mouth us all day long but you know when you've got truth and, and actual government documents on your side what's the, all they can say is well that somebody wants to fake that document you know
0: yeah, well, yeah, no, and everybody, yeah, they can criticize whatever document you use, but unless they have something just as compelling and just as verifiable... Where would you find that document? Yeah, well, and that's why well, it's important, too, that, you know, we want to use verifiable places, you know, NARA, the Mary Farrell Foundation, the Assassination Archives Research Center, you know, places you know that scholars are working, that have gone got the exact thing from the government, and posted it without alterations because we see that on facebook a lot i'm sure you do and i have a bunch of times where you'll see people take pieces of documents and put them together make a new fake document that has everything they want in their story
1: oh so yeah, like well you know just a couple months ago when i guess maybe a month or two ago in like the national Enquirer, there they had the mccone rally document in there oof. as proof you know, that Oswald worked for the CIA and they, they were going through it all. And that was, that was the same one that had Judy in it. And... Mm-hmm. <clears throat> yeah.
0: Which, yeah, the McCone-Rowley, uh, you know, and as I'm sure many out there already know, is a fake document. It is a combination document where, you know, you got Secret Service numbers and other agency numbers mixed together. You've got, you know, protocols that would be used in an FBI document or another agency's document mixed in with – it. It's and you can tell just because there's no verifiable path to where the original is. So if there's no original that a verifiable place, who cares? It's just Photoshop.
1: Yeah. Well, Robert Groden would beg to differ
0: with you, but oh, I know. I saw that. Did you see that uh, special they did on him on YouTube? That's where I saw him talking about it.
1: Yeah. Well, no. I I actually he- I heard him about it uh, over on uh, the Midnight Writer podcast. That he had him on a couple weeks ago. Um, <sighs> I was talking to him and. You know, look, I, I'm not, I, you know, I don't like to bad mouth people that have done a lot of great stuff for, for research, you know, like, I think it's a great thing that, that Groden goes and sits in, in, in Dealey Plaza, you know, on the weekend for the past, what, 30 some years or however long he's been doing it and basically lost his family over, you know, pers- the pursuit of the truth and, you know, was responsible for getting the uh, Zapruder film out there and all that, but, you know, I mean, here we are and. You know, you're a photo expert. You can't tell that the McCone rally document is a composite document with no verifiable, uh, you know, provenance. It's like, okay. You know, if you want to hang your hat on that, that's fine, but, you know, whatever.
0: Yeah. Well, and, and the unfortunate thing is, like you said, he did a lot of great things, but sometimes, as we've seen with. Other people as well, they get to a point to where they, they've seen so much that either they lose heart or they just get tired or you know they, they, they lose interest in continuing to dig when new things emerge. So they try to grab one thing, and the, it's, it's convenient. The Things like the McCone-Rowley document are convenient because it's got all the flavors you want. You know, it's got Oswald and the CIA. It's got them putting all their plans down. But one of the huge problems with it is I believe it's only secret. And it's got like every bad thing that would have been associated with the Kennedy assassination <laughs> in one place. And it's secret, not top secret, which would it would be. <laughs> if it's all their secrets in one document, they're not just going to hand that out to everybody. That's going to be one that's the highest classification. Yeah. So that's burn one of the huge after reading. problems with it. Yeah, exactly, yeah. And they probably wouldn't have even written it down, which we know was, you know, a technique that they mentioned in the assassination guide and in other places. So it makes no sense.
1: You know, I think, you know, a lot of the people that are looking for smoking guns in these these document releases are going to be greatly disappointed. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, there's no way in hell they would ever let us see any of this shit. Like, I'm sure if there has been a smoking gun document, you know, on par with the McCoon rally document, something like that, or we're never going to see it. It's been long destroyed and, and gone, I'm sure, um, if there ever was yeah. anything like that at this point.
0: And, yeah, and I think people need to realize, too, that, you know, it it, it was like – I would I would agree with that assessment. I would say it was likely one or the other. It's either it was destroyed in, you know, the first round of destruction that happened – Just after President Kennedy, when the CIA investigation went on and certain documents were taken out, or when Nixon got rid of Helms and he destroyed a bunch of documents, you know, MKUltra and other stuff, that all got destroyed then. And I'm sure there were other – there's also a period after a certain time the CIA just destroys things. If it is no longer legally, they're allowed to. If it is no longer considered pertinent to the file, they can consolidate them and destroy things.
1: Right. So I mean and and just going through a lot of what was released is it's you know, it's a lot of anti Castro Cuban activities. You know, mm-hmm. a lot of these a lot of these guys are still alive or, or were alive into the nineties and, and early two thousands and you know, it's a lot of you know, basically methods and plans and things like this and how they use informants and you know, there's a lot of uh, a lot of informant based information in these releases as well, which of course is not verifiable information. It's hearsay, but, um, you know, some of it's interesting and I think we're going to hear a little bit of it today. So, yeah, let's get into a little bit. of Okay.
0: Okay. Um,
1: 30 minutes into the interview. So,
0: (laughs) (laughs) well, you know, we had to catch up. It's been months and months since we've talked.
1: I know we got plenty. I'll, uh,
0: I'll try to give you the, uh, the short version I'm going to hit the, uh, so real quick, I wanted to discuss you know some of the things that uh, you know I've found in the older files since yes. the last time me and Rob had a chance to talk. And uh, it was this past August before the new files emerged. Uh, a person that I had mentioned, and if you actually go back to Two Princes and the King, I don't mention him by name because I didn't know his name then, but it's a person I mentioned in the book that was the unidentified large man spotted near Ackard and Commerce Street on November 22nd, 1963 i just i put him in the book because when i noticed that this person with a rifle was you know only blocks away from daily plaza and was unidentified i thought that was notable <laughs> right and, and didn't really see everybody seems to think that it
1: could be a, you know it could have been like jerry hemming or somebody sent there to maybe impersonate hemming as a patsy or something along those lines but yeah let us know what you found
0: okay well uh so uh As, you know, people know, some have attempted to place others or themselves in Dewey Plaza with an assigned motive, means, and opportunity. But in every instance, problems exist with one or more of the essential requirements. No suspect has ever possessed all the elements necessary for definitive criminal guilt, and this includes Lee Harvey Oswald. Uh, So the majority of suspects... Often present, you know, are going to give us dead ends relying on endorsements or popularity. However, interesting figures and potential suspects, I would contend, do exist often hidden in the legal record. Um, John Henry Hill was a wealthy Texas citizen who owned a significant oil and mineral rights interests and was a partner in an operation of the Dallas based Southwest Production Company. During 1962, Roger Tittle, a repeated business associate of John Hill, was president of the Panhandle Steel Company. Tittle reported to the FBI that Hill made repeated public threats against President Kennedy during a prior dinner arrangement. Now, these are in FBI files. Hill allegedly criticized what the president was doing to the country regarding desegregation and blamed him for bringing communists and socialists into the government, and that Kennedy's comments were affecting his business interests. Tittle then offered that Hill said, you better do something to get this stopped because I know several oilmen who have what it takes to get president assassinated. Reportedly at this point, Tittle's wife burst into tears and she and Mrs. Hill left the table. Despite the recorded drinking at dinner, Tittle advised that Hill was sober when he made the threat and told Hill it was a breach of law to do so. Tittle states that Hill prior drastically switched from a Democratic supporter of President Kennedy to a Republican critic when many of the Kennedy's administration policies adversely affected his business and threatened his view of American society. So, Roger Tittle also states uh, that his wife, Velma and Mrs. JoBeth Hill were present during the tirade. His wife, Velma, in a separate statement, corroborates Tittle's allegations. The last description Tittle gives to authorities of Hill is that he is an unstable but shrewd business operator. Of the other handful of witnesses interviewed regarding Hill were business associates of both Hill and Tittle. One associate, Mr. Gene Chambers, confirms that Tittle prior recounted the uncomfortable dinner episode, but Chambers did not directly hear John Hill make the threats business associate Oscar S Wyatt, chairman of the coastal States gas production company stated that here Hill would have used the contacts with the Kennedy administration and not made threats. Yet, if Hill allegedly made the statements, it's unlikely he would have contacted the Kennedy administration to voice them. Right. (laughs) So I just want to give you a chance, you know, if you want to say anything, I've got a ton of stuff, so feel free to stop me whenever you want, Rob. (laughs) Um, yeah, well, I, so, think, uh, so John, I think
1: Chris, oh, Chris sorry. Gallup talked about that a little bit at Lancer this year, didn't he?
0: Yeah, he, Chris Gallup was talking about oil men and like different, you know <laughs> he had basically a bigger oil men based plot and one a couple of the people he talked about were Tittle and Hill right. and, right. Uh, at which, you know, hey that's, I'm thankful yeah. that people are talking about stuff that we discuss. so you know, yeah. that's great, I'm glad that For he sure. was interested he said that he came across Tittle a while back but I'm just happy that I got that finally, you know, help with Hill. And I know too. I also, though we were both pursuing it, and uh, I re- I respect him for his, <laughs> for his his you know reasonable uh, dis- disposition. Steve Rowe, when I put out the, uh, the article back in August on Hill, he said I've been scooped. <laughs> so mm-hmm. I think Steve was on Hill's trail too. So is so I, one I, of
1: these guys the the big man that you were referring to in that one document?
0: Well, document? I I. I, yeah i'm hoping that uh basically i believe that the, i would contend that based on the evidence he is john henry hill and i think that's uh well here's some more information and then i'll i'll uh, go into why i think so uh, uh henry so, hill from
1: goodfellas fame though right
0: no yes no john henry hill the oil man Forget in texas but it. you know what if you type it in trust me i had to see so many things about henry hill trying to get to information about john henry hill i oh, i'm
1: sure i'm sure
0: that's good fellow yes yeah, way more Just popular so were
1: confused here
0: <laughs> exactly hey you gotta help me out with this broad henry um
1: <laughs> bada bing bada boom
0: <laughs> so uh so yeah so john henry hill's uh recent former partner at the time was a guy named joe driscoll and he stated that he had never heard john henry hill make threats against president kennedy and did not believe hill would undertake violence but he admits that Hill is given to loose talk. So this might suggest Driscoll considered if such talk occurred, he doubted Hill would follow through with his loose talk, but it could have happened. And while Hill via Driscoll had contacts with some officials, he actually never met President Kennedy or associated with him. Uh, Additionally, these are merely business endorsements of Hill, not evidence of his actions or comments that can be verified. John Hill in his own statement offers he could not recall having been in a group where he was alleged to have made remarks against the safety of the president and stated that at no time was he informed by anyone that his remarks constituted a federal violation. Which I think is an interesting way to answer. Yeah. yeah he I didn't said know he making threats remember- against
1: the president was illegal. Yeah, I, I,
0: he not only yeah, not only could he not remember making the loud threats against the president in public, but he also couldn't remember anyone reminding him that it was a federal violation to do so. <laughs>
1: Or walking down the street with a with a giant gun strapped to his back, the day the president's going through the city.
0: I don't know. So yeah, so he advised that he was at a loss to understand why anyone should attribute remarks such as these to him, and added that is in his, his opinion that the basis of the, these remarks probably began with people in the oil business in Dallas, who were envious of his business deals or had suffered financial losses because of his company. Which I guess is possible. Uh, yeah.
1: Well, it makes me think, too, uh, Carmine, of the wealthy oilman who was arrested briefly coming out of the Tech building. that was never, like, properly identified that everybody says was George Mm. Bush.
0: Yeah, which is – we know that that isn't true because, you know, the the photograph, Steve Rowe, I also thought it was a great show that you did – with Doug unbeating the Bushies, to knock down that myth some, because we know that he was in another part of Texas and actually called in. You know, like, one of the things that annoys me about the whole Bush myth is when people try to use the parrot document for Bush calling in to report. But it's after the assassination, and he's in Tyler. (laughs) So how could he be (laughs) in Dallas? He
1: flew on a supersonic jet that got him there in 15 minutes, (laughs) Carl. Don't you know anything? I mean, come on. Exactly. Come on. (laughs)
0: <laughs> so, um so, it's like Bruce Wayne. A tr- yeah, I know exactly. He's yeah, he's got a teleport pad. <laughs> it was the '60s; they had one. <laughs> um But so,
1: <laughs> ask Andrew so Hill- it could it could have been possible. <laughs> he traveled through the wormhole with Barack Obama.
0: But I'm sorry, short, sh- 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 oh, that's fine. Short of those. <laughs> Like I said, we got months and months of jokes and stuff we need to get out of the virus system. It was so. the Montauk Project. <laughs> I mean,
1: come on.
0: <laughs> so Hill attributes jealous business rivals were responsible for the accusation, despite the information emerging from someone not in the oil business to him to load money. He also confirms that he may have stated the Kennedy administration was going socialistic, but denied that he said they were bringing communists and socialists into the government. He'll never denies eventually voicing serious fundamental problems with the Kennedy administration, but he can't remember if he made repeated tirades. He cannot recall, and he does not understand, why someone would tell officials he did, but he claims he did not make a death threat. Yet even those who do not think he was responsible still commented on his unfortunate habit for loose talk and his public bravado. Thus, it's not unreasonable to contend that Hill made threats and accusations. If one believes him, they were just not death threats. One instance of serious disagreement might serve as a motive for seeking revenge on President Kennedy. While John Hill did indeed make significant profits during the Kennedy administration, he could have made substantially more if officials had not denied a business venture he collaborated on with others to undertake. During 1963, Hill and some business associates created a business group to purchase the complete oil rights in Texas of the Pan American Oil Company. They planned to reorganize the corporation and sell its gas to the city of El Paso at a large profit. While they attempted to finish the arrangement, the Federal Power Commission, according to Hill, prevented the arrangement with complicated seizures. Hill eventually abandoned the deal after his attorney instructed him to do so. He stated being disappointed and may have uttered comments about the Kennedy administration's socialistic tendencies. He also said having connections to President Kennedy and likely followed – he also, as as I said before, had connections to President Kennedy and likely followed financial news regarding his investments and thus could have come across the announced trip and motorcade route from either source. Thus, we have a reasonable motive. We have multiple witnesses making legal statements to officials. We even have the possible suspect affirming he had reasons to dislike and perhaps even despise the Kennedy administration. He does not deny his policy opposition because of financial interests, but asserts that he never directly made a death threat. We even have his supporters' admission of unadvisable commentary when the moment strikes. Roger Tittle claimed Hill was unstable, just as some claimed Lee Harvey Oswald was. Yet unlike Oswald, this man has a discernible possible motive. Mrs. Jobeth Beth Hill told the FBI on the morning of November 22, 1963, she and Mr. Hill were downtown in Dallas. The Hills were shopping for a scheduled hunting trip and running errands. Mrs. Hill went to Neiman Marcus, the Neiman Marcus store that morning and dropped off jewelry to be repaired. She then went to join her husband at Cullum and Boren's Sporting Goods on Elm Street nearby. She asserts it was just before noon. Yet this conflicts with the multiple times other witnesses offered who feasibly observed John Hill shortly later in the day. Based on the majority of related witnesses and corroborative factors that are available, it was more likely roughly 20 to 25 minutes before noon when she arrived at and Boren. The Hills previously had scheduled a hunting vacation at Vermejo Park Ranch in New Mexico. While Mrs. Hill was at Neiman Marcus, John Hill purchased a new, likely pre-ordered rifle, or one selected that was already prepared for use on his trip. Being a millionaire, likely afforded Hill benefits a regular person's budget lacked, and he purchased clothing, ammunition, and other necessities as well. Mrs. Hill leaves Cullum and Boren likely by their own car because neither Hill nor his wife is seen overburdened with several bags of goods. All of their purchases had to be stored somewhere, yet Mr. Hill, who walked to the nearby Baker Hotel, retained at least one purchase. Approximately three minutes later, according to the President's Warren Commission, witness John Lawrence, at about 11.45 a.m., he and Philip Hathaway observed a peculiar man on the corner of Commerce and Ackert Street. Hathaway and Lawrence recount observing a large man over six foot five, exceeding 250 pounds, with a blonde crew cut in his 30s. He was dressed in a light gray suit and white shirt, fair-skinned, and walking in the opposite direction on the same side of the street. From Hathaway's perspective, he also observed the large man carried a rifle in a gun case. The case was possibly made of beige or tan leather with olive drab material. The men assumed this person was probably Secret Service, yet there were no Secret Service men reported in the area at that time. However, thirty-five-year-old, six-foot-six, two-hundred-and-eighty-pound, blond-haired, well-dressed John Henry Hill was feasibly proceeding to lunch with his wife at the Imperial Club inside the Baker Hotel at the corner of Commerce and Ackert Street. The Hills likely sat down and ordered lunch by eleven-fifty. Some questions presently come to mind. First, why did Hill bring a rifle to lunch? Did he store it elsewhere, or did he give it to someone? Additionally, why did Mrs. Hill never mention the rifle? Roughly 20 minutes later, at possibly 12.10 p.m., Mrs. Hill excuses herself and walks or drives to Neiman Marcus. From this point, no definitive evidence yet locates John Hill, and thus far, he remains unseen by anyone during this portion of the timeline, including his wife. Thus, we are left with the evidence present and can make informed deductions and reasonable approximations based on a short timeline. So what do you think of that so far?
1: (laughs) Well, I think it's good we finally identified this guy. I mean... Of course, he wasn't alone in his feelings about President Kennedy. Um, mm-hmm. By any stretch of the imagination, I'm sure a lot of people felt the same way, and I'm sure a few others also voiced their unhappiness with his policies and his stance on communism and his, uh, you know, his, his, you know, he wants to cry about not being given a monopoly in Texas on the oil business. Sorry, buddy. Get over it. Um, but, yeah, I think it's interesting, you know, because this, at least before, you know, this guy has always been posited, oh, it could have been Jerry Hemming. You know, a big guy, 6'5", six, 6'6", six, six, whatever, um, <clears throat> you know, short, blonde, crew cut, but, you know, Hemming never had blonde hair. Or, or you know, maybe, maybe people sur- surmise that it could have been, <clears throat> you know, like a double you know, just to plant that seed that maybe Hemming was in Dallas with a gun. Um, but I think it's good we finally identified this guy, even though I don't I don't think anything sinister here. You know, I think, like you said, you know, he's a rich guy, and he bought a rifle that day, and, you know, he's going to walk down the street with it, do 6'6". You not say anything to him. I mean, and this is 63. I mean, it wasn't a big deal to see somebody, with you know, with a gun. In Texas,
0: yeah. Oh, yeah. No, yeah. I, I don't. I definitely don't think I'm waiting for the, like I told Chuck, I said that whenever I go into a suspect, just because it's always happened in every other case when I've gone into them, I'm waiting for the thing that pulls it apart, and I haven't found that yet. And I probably will, but I just think he's so now. The first thing I think is important is, like you said, we, we've identified him finally, or at least someone who matches. I just don't think there were a lot of six foot six 280 pound crew cut blonde haired men in suits with guns at the corner of akron and commerce at that moment <laughs> exactly exactly you know, other people sense.
1: yeah you know if they were in town buying supplies to leave on a trip you know, maybe maybe he dumped a bunch of stuff in the car maybe there wasn't room you know yeah. for the rifle Yeah, there's or yeah, or yeah, maybe a lot he of reasons why it to show have... somebody say hey man check this out look what i just got you know
0: yeah the only possible thing where I think it would—it's—it's it's highly improbable. But the only possible thing where I think it could be sinister is if he could have handed it to someone at the club and they did something with it. But that's, like I said, that's just speculation. That's—I don't—I don't consider that. But I—but I, the important thing that we've, you know, we've said a couple of times that I think is notable is that we finally can see who he is. So it's right. not just some unidentified guy that everyone can forever speculate on. So uh, then. Uh, yeah, so Joe Beth Hill uh, walks the block back to Neiman Marcus. Uh, basically also, one thing I would note to everyone is the distance, you know, whether or not you know Hill has any sort of direct connection to the Kennedy case, anybody in this distance or closer has the ability to actually get there in time. So if we're going to be looking for suspects, they need to be within blocks of the assassination just before the assassination.
1: And, and it's important to also remember, there's nobody, we have no confirmation of, of anybody seeing a six foot six guy.
0: Yeah, he would have stuck out.
1: Anywhere around Dealey Plaza, on the Knoll, in the Depository, in the Techs, on Main Street, Elm Street, Houston Street. Yeah. I mean, there, there was a tall guy on Houston Street that people seem to think was Jerry Hemming in that, in that one photo, um, but...
0: I think he was like, I think, I mean, I don't, you know, don't quote me. I think between like six, two, six, three.
1: No, I think he was about six, five. I mean, he was a big, dude.
0: Oh, okay. Oh, he was that big. Okay. Yeah. But he, maybe he was thinner then cause I just, I would think that he was, you know what I mean? He was, Oh, he
1: was definitely thinner than,
0: yeah. Yeah. this, cause this guy was just huge. Like I can't even imagine most of the people then I would think are like five, six, five, eight, you know, maybe he weighed 150 pounds, 170 pounds. This guy's just a monster.
1: <laughs> yeah, I don't think I don't think Heming was two eighty back then. I think he was probably about two hundred. You know, just tall and you know lean. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, more soldier like but
1: you know, average but big. Just a big dude, you know. Mm-hmm. Not muscular, not fat, but just a big dude, you know.
0: Another interesting thing about uh about Hill is he sells off all of his shares in the company the month before the assassination. Now, I'm not saying that that has to be anything nefarious. It, it Probably, it could have, you know, feasibly, it could have been related to the deal that he lost. And he had lost so much money, he just got tired and fed up and decided that he was going to liquidate all of his shares so he didn't have to deal with it anymore and just took the money that he could get out of it. Because he still did have mineral rights and other things, too.
1: Yeah, I think that sounds, that sounds about right he was probably so pissed he was like all right screw this i'm i'm selling off this shit and done with it
0: yeah so um and but i think one of the things that i'd like you know like i said he doesn't have to be any sort of a viable candidate for the assassin but he actually has a motive which i think is important for us to distinguish between him and oswald because oswald has no motive the commission's own psychiatric experts admitted they couldn't give him a motive You know, there's there's just no evidence for exactly what his thinking was, which is why we've seen people who want to support the commission say crazy or, you know, he just came unglued, something just set him off. You know, I've actually heard someone say when he watched that program on President Kennedy on TV a couple nights before, it set him off and he just had to go after him, which, you know, okay, well, if that's the case, then how did he do it all in the small amount of time that we know that he had to have had if he was a lone gunman without practice? And then, you know, it all falls apart. Oh, yeah. Okay, so yeah. So Hill was the little interesting old thing. Let's get into the new stuff. Uh, And then there's an article with links to all the evidence that I gave Rob called The Man About Town. For those that want to read some more about Hill. To me, the the craziest thing when I first came across that was just that his wife was like, oh yeah, we were downtown in Dallas. He was buying a gun (laughs) (laughs) five blocks away from Dealey Plaza just before the shooting.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I think you would plan ahead just a little bit
0: you would if hope you,
1: if you knew the if you knew the motorcade route and everything a couple of days ahead of time you might you know if you're a millionaire i think you can, you probably either already have a shit ton of rifles or yeah you're not going to wait till like an hour before he's coming through to go get a rifle but but yeah i'm going to put up all the uh the links to all these documents in the in the show notes so anybody wants to check it out just head for the show notes and you'll be able to to find all this stuff from there
0: Okay, so uh, so now on to the newer information from the series of releases we've been awash in since earlier this year. Oh, yeah. For those who have not yeah, – yeah, I know Rob knows already, but for those who have not been keeping track, I wanted to offer a breakdown of what's been going on. Uh, as many researchers and JFK advocates know, officials were legally bound under the JFK Records Act to release the remaining files in the case in the possession of the government, not released by the Assassination Records Review Board in the 1990s. However – And there's always a however. (laughs) Officials also could, under the law, continue to withhold files under certain circumstances that include national security concerns. While this might be legitimate in only the gravest of direct threats to national security, this case seemingly does not represent such a grand claim of security threat after the over a half century has passed since it began and because a large majority of those involved are deceased. Yes. So, the National Archives released its first round of documents on July 24th, 2017. They released nearly 4,000 documents. October 26th, as the second release was a second release of 2,891 documents, and this was the legal deadline for the government to release all the related files in the JFK collections. Clearly, these were not all the remaining documents, which media and public sources and experts say range from 300 to 30,000 documents at that point still remain unreleased. Many were angry, outraged, and expected nothing further to emerge this year. However, after the media attention faded and the JFK documents sort of fell out of the public notice, they released three additional document releases – with an overwhelming 25,000 partially withheld or withheld in full documents have been released in just November, and many are doing their best to wade through this huge information dump that just happened. So, you know, of the 20, which goes to show you, too, that was the higher estimations, you know, by people like Bill Simpich and Rex Bradford, and others that said it was tens of thousands of documents they still had because they just dropped 25,000 on us, and they're still withholding more. So there's even more documents left.
1: There's supposed to be more coming in the spring is what I heard. They had six yeah, months, after this, extra six months or so.
0: Which I don't think was a coincidence that the FBI and the CIA waited to the last day to throw in some last minute, ah, uh, well, we don't want this to go out. So they could get that extra six months to really, I think that really what is what this is. Sometimes I think uh, the number that I read was four. There are only four NARA people doing all of this. So they're going to miss stuff. We're going to get some good documents in there because nobody can read them, you know, from top to bottom, all of those hundreds of thousands of different pages.
1: Or know what they're
0: in reading. that amount of time. Yeah. And no, yeah, exactly. They know how it relates to everything else. So um, so many researchers have been busy offering the new files, and I want to cover some of the files I came across in the time since the last time we were really discussing the case. Um, one of the documents I have prior discussed here and elsewhere is known as the Cassison Memo, which was first revealed by Joan Mellon in 2008. The document was redacted in some portions and the name of both the sender and the recipient were hidden under pseudonyms. For those who are unfamiliar with pseudonyms, they're false names used to hide the identity of a person.
1: Now, was it, well, wasn't this, Thomas Cassason a pseudonym for...
0: Yep. Yeah, Thomas Cassason was the pseudonym for the person sending the information and Walter P. Heltigan was the uh, name of the, peop- of the person who was to be the recipient of the letter. And the memo essentially states that uh, the CIA Soviet Russia division officer Thomas B. Kassasson Considered using Lee Harvey Oswald for intelligence purposes However Many of the hidden details prevented the coded Names and important parts of the Memo from being understood So when I first read that document Years ago I had talked to, to Chuck and Rob at various Points you know, on the shows and elsewhere about How I wanted to find him I wanted to know who was the Guy who said he was going to use Oswald, which goes contrary to nearly every agency employee that's been asked over the years, even Cass later lied about it, (laughs) said, no, he's not the sort of guy we'd use even after he thought about using Oswald in 62.
1: Yeah. And it, and and trust me folks, it's a name you've heard before.
0: Uh, so I started to do a mass stuff on, uh, Uh, on Casasin. I'm trying to relearn it, too, because I called him Casasin forever, because that seems how it's spelled, but Casasin, I've heard, is the proper pronunciation, so forgive me if I go back and forth. Uh, So years later, following the release of the new documents, I was looking within the earliest releases this year, and I came upon a version of the Casasin document that was not just unredacted, but also contained the written true names of those who had only appeared in pseudonyms in the other versions. The new version of the memo reveals that Walter P. Haltigan was James M. Flint, a CIA officer in the Soviet office of Paris Station, who received a message from Thomas B. Casson, a.k.a. Jacques G. Richardson. Richardson served the agency in Japan from 1955 to 1960. He then was transferred to serve in the Soviet Russia Division 6 as the chief of a Soviet base in North Asia Command. And according to Richardson, he performed espionage operations against the USSR during his service there. Now, during this same period, Lee Harvey Oswald was in the Soviet Union as well and drew Richardson's attention because of his strange behavior and his ability to leave the Soviet Union with a Russian bride and a new child on a State Department loan, no less. Richardson expressed concern that Oswald possibly was being used by Moraine into the West and become a Soviet sleeper agent. CIA officials had observed a pattern of Soviet women marrying Western husbands, and after relocation, they would divorce these husbands and remain in the Western nations. Interestingly, Interestingly, Richardson did not mention that he was also running a tourist agent who, similar to Oswald, married a Russian national and relocated with her to France. This was the same country Richardson's next assignment would take him to and where he retired.
1: All right, now hang on a second, Carmine. Because <clears throat> was was Thomas, the name Thomas Cassason, used by more than one person as a pseudonym? Cause I right now. Swore...
0: I was just going to say the only person I know for sure that's used it, it was Richardson. God
1: damn, I should have said it. Because I, 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 I could have swore I saw it in documents that it was um, somebody else was using it as well. And it's, and it's a name that we've all heard of before like I wish I could remember I
0: I suppose it's possible I know that there were there were some that were reused but yeah the only the only person I linked and it was totally by you know like I told you I was looking for him and what happened was I found that first document and then it was a struggle to try to find stuff about him because basically he left and it was only by chance that he had gone to U of M the University of Michigan which is actually kind of close to where I am and he got into their uh, their student register as you know just you know they gave him an update on alumni and he was an alumni where they're like you know he just relocated with his family to france well that lines up with this article i found in german that i had to translate or luckily google translates halfway decent <laughs> and found out that he'd also been in world war Two, and then i just you know started putting the pieces together on him but that's the crazy thing is that he's not only is he the guy who thought about using Oswald, he's the guy who thought about using Oswald while he was running a tourist agent like Oswald, that you know, similar to what Oswald appeared to be, and that guy also happened to marry a Russian woman at the time, and happened to be able to get out of the country with her. Yeah. Yeah, but
1: if any, if anybody comes across Thomas kasasin the name Thomas uh, uh or Kassassin, or whatever the hell he is, associated with a different name than this this french guy um jacques, what is was jacques richardson
0: well, 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 yeah jacques richardson he's actually american okay i don't it's know a, maybe his family was like heavy into france and he ended up wanting to go there so
1: yeah if anybody else runs across anything about the name casaison being associated with somebody else though other than this guy get it me or carmine and, and let us know because i could have swore i've seen it somewhere
0: well, I'm, and I'm sure, yeah, I, I, yeah, no. If they have a document, you know, we're more than happy to look at it. You never know that's happened in some cases. They've actually used the same name with different people, or actually two different names on one person to make it look like there's two people in the letter when it's really just one person. Right. Um, so yeah, so so this is uh, a notable error too. I would mention to people in the original memo is is Richardson says that he was looking during 1960, but it was actually 62. When when he was really looking over the case again, so it was not too long before the assassination, which I would contend supports, since Oswald had caught Richardson's eye for intelligence use, caught the eye of others with similar ideas too. Right. Um, I was I was able to track Richardson based on he and another crazy thing about this is usually you know as I said before most of the people that we're dealing with in this case are historical research only feast, but. He's been writing books, and out, so after France, he basically went to work undercover as a non-official cover agent in the UN, and he was part of UNESCO, which, you know, they were basically declaring historical sites, and he was writing books, and I even have, I found one book by him that was out as late as 2016, so it's possible he's still alive, and in his 90s, <laughs> That'd be crazy. still writing books, yeah. Yeah. I, you know, I sometimes wonder if he has read or heard about anything <laughs> when I've mentioned him online a few times now since August. I wonder what his thoughts are. <laughs> I actually wrote uh, – um, I sent an email. I didn't think it was going to get through. I actually sent another email, too, to uh, another guy that I had I had written about uh, who supposedly was still alive, Marvin uh, – I'll find the name for you. But, yeah, you know, I – I don't think I'm going to get anything back from either of them, but we'll see.
1: They probably don't have computers. They're probably old school.
0: (laughs) Yeah, or someone's getting it for them, and they're not going to send that one along, I have a feeling. Yeah. It's like, hey, were you uh, a non-official cover for the CIA? Yeah, I'm sure they're... they're Uh, So... So, yeah, and then there's – I put uh, beyond the document, I also uh, sent Rob two articles where it goes into some other documents, and you can see links from there. And his car actually took him because when he went to France, he went on the cover of a officer of the Conover Mast Book Company, which turned out to be another uh, cover mechanism for the CIA. So um, another thing I wanted to, to – towards for when they have time. I compiled from some of the, uh, the new information, I compiled CIA files from the Office of Personnel. And that includes some of the well-known figures in the case, uh, like David L. Christ, Lucien Coyne, and Crozier, Ann Goodpasture, William Harvey, Thomas Keenan, J. Walton Moore, David Atlee Phillips, and uh, Richard Snyder, and many others as well. That'll provide us not just with, you know, greater knowledge on our subjects of interest, but I come all of the CIA uh, employee, officer and uh, agent files in one place. So there's a link to that, too. It's called CIA Consolidated Files now. And I'm going to try to keep adding in time. You know, as I pull up new names, I'll probably make it an hour once I get like about a dozen and then just try to keep updating that. And I've read through a lot of them but I'm sure the stuff, you know, one pair of eyes is not going to catch everything. So I would advise that if you are interested in these people, it's really worth going to the personnel files because there's a lot of stuff that we're not going to see in the more general files that comes out in those.
1: And a lot of it still has uh, been redacted as well.
0: Oh yeah. You're going to find that, especially in people like Philip. Some of those, you're going to find 10, 20 page stretches yeah. where it's just basically redactions, but there still are, I'd say at least that, you know, much or more in stuff we can read. And I, the important with those, I think, is it's not just necessarily what the documents say, but it's also the dates that were provided with some of the personnel actions. So we can actually find them where they are in the timeline, and we can track what they're doing. So when someone says, you know, David Atley Phillips is here, well, no, his personnel file says he's here, so this is where he is, you know, rather than where people might say he was. Um, and then, moving uh, right along, uh, the final document I wanted to go over today, uh, which I think is an interesting one, uh, it's from. It regards uh, the author and journalist Priscilla Johnson McMillan. Have you heard of her, Rob?
1: <laughs> yeah, name sounds familiar.
0: Uh, for those unfamiliar with her, she was a, a journalist, spoke four languages. Didn't she write? Like later became Lee, a best. Me and Lee. <laughs> the original one. Uh, I definitely that you know it's hilarious that, you that. Yeah, <laughs> it's definitely hilarious that you say that because I totally think that's where Baker got her idea for her book title. Of course. Uh, yeah. Ne- never one for an original idea. <laughs> nah, the original uh,
1: title of Macmillan's book was what? Lee and Marina, or
0: Marina, Marina and Lee?
1: Marina and Lee. Instead of yep. me
0: and Lee. Okay. Gotcha. Uh huh gotcha published in ninth, yeah with a picture of you know them on the front smiling and all that so <laughs> and well, th- that was, was a real
1: picture right not a painting
0: <laughs> exactly yes this was actually a picture where those people actually knew each other <laughs> no <Oof>. drawings needed <laughs> imagine that <laughs> so uh it was published in 1977 and McMillan offered several reports, articles, and interviews regarding her book and Lee Harvey Oswald. She actually spoke to Oswald shortly after he attempted to revoke his U.S. citizenship and would characterize him as angry but wholly endorsed that he was the assassin of President Kennedy based on little more than official endorsements in her opinions. Many researchers for a number of years began to grow suspicious of McMillan's repeated endorsements and some even she was a knowing tool of the official narrative regarding Oswald. It turns out those who are skeptical of McMillan were correct and Priscilla Mary Post Johnson, as she was formerly known, was a contact and source of the CIA. A new document from this year's later releases contains the notes of HSCA researcher Bob Gensman and they regard the 201 file of McMillan, and reveal she applied for employment with the CIA in the early 1950s and was rejected for security concerns. However, she was later issued a provisional operational approval in the later 1950s and she agreed to a debriefing at the u.s embassy before returning to the soviet union and was debriefed by her quote case officer in 1956 she expressed a willingness to do what she could when official comments she could act as a spotter and contact appropriate soviets of interest in 1958 she was suggested for use as a traveler and informant and proposed for clearance in 1959 she interviews Lee Harvey Oswald hours after being tipped off by Moscow embassy official John McVicker. During the 1960s, she is debriefed, and repeatedly contacted by the CIA, reports intelligence to them, and is cleared for use. She's also selected as the likely candidate to write an article in a major U.S. publication for the agency campaign. And officials, she can be, quote, encouraged to write pretty much the article we want.
1: And the book we want,
0: pretty much. Yeah, yeah. I th- definitely think there are some questions about now people, you know, calling her an unbiased critic. Uh, I don't. I don't think unbiased is a word that should be used anymore. <laughs>
1: nope. Not at all.
0: And yeah, apparently she, you know, like I said, she was a bestseller. It's so. How many? The question is, how many others might there be? I don't think we found last one.
1: No, and as we, <clears throat> excuse me, and as we know now, you know, through things like Operation Mockingbird and stuff, they were using people in the media, in the news, in the newspapers, and you know, in the CIA's employ uh, to to get across what they wanted to to the American people and the rest of the world. So, it's not a huge stretch, and uh, you know, it's it's basically another form of a way to shape the public opinion of of. Uh, of a uh, historical figure, you know?
0: Yeah, no, I totally agree. And I think that too, that those people, unfortunately, some of the people who probably at first suspected Macmillan are no longer with us, but it did bore out that they had a reason to be suspicious. And it isn't just, you know, I, I this is another example of why people shouldn't just automatically dispel or disbelieve things because officials try to claim that they're the talk of a crazy conspiracist or they're the talk of people who don't know because actually yeah. the evidence does bear out that she it's, it's, it's had reminiscent
1: junk- of uh it's reminiscent of clay shaw a little bit you know
0: yeah 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 that he ended up being a yeah and and that's the that's the thing is that i think a lot of people they they might be suspicious and misinterpret why they're lying but that they're lying is probably not outside the bounds of reason <laughs> right so yeah no i hope everything was interesting and i hope everyone enjoyed some of the new stuff and you know when i come back i'll it won't be as long of a a span i'll have more stuff for you hopefully i'm going to through you know the new documents as much as i can and as always it's always great to be back rob get to talk to you for a bit
1: yeah i mean it's just like old times huh
0: (laughs) (laughs) exactly we fit in (laughs) hopefully we fit in quite a few subjects
1: the uh you know the show sounds better we'll see we'll probably get done. It's it's going to sound like we're both at the bottom of the ocean or something, but (sighs) we tried. Yeah.
0: Yeah. yeah, There won't be any technical issues this time. Uh, Fingers crossed.
1: Knocking on wood. Fingers crossed. (laughs) I mean, (laughs) because what you, what you folks at home don't know. Um, when I'm hearing Carmine talk, he sounds like he is at the bottom of a well. Um, but hopefully that's not coming through on the recording. Hopefully he's coming in loud and clear. So fingers crossed once again. And, uh, and, uh, you know, what more can you hope for? Right.
0: I I just, yeah. And my, my, my final messages to the people at Skype and Spreaker, come on guys, get it together. Yeah, <laughs> you I mean, need an app that's going to make everybody sound great that everyone can use easily. Come on guys.
1: <laughs> it's almost 2020. I mean, can't we do this shit yet? Or, you know, Uh I'm just glad I finally figured this out, how to integrate Skype into, into Spreaker and actually record. Um, so yeah, I mean, when I did it with Bart the first time, I think I was coming in really, really hot on my microphone level Uh because I was using a headset. Now talking to you, I'm using a standalone microphone and uh separate headphones so hopefully this uh does the trick oh, okay and, and i sound like i'm not coming in all eating the microphone all hot and shit like that but um that <laughs> sounded great on his end so hopefully you sound great on your end too when we, when we get done this thing but anyway thanks thanks so much for coming okay. back carmine and uh we're gonna have to do it again soon my friend
0: Definitely, I'm looking forward to it, and I'll keep my eyes on the files and let you know what I see.
1: Definitely, keep digging. I'll keep digging, and uh, I'll send you if I find anything uh, interesting. And I would, I would encourage all the listeners out there too. You know, it's a team effort, people. So if you're looking through these files and you see anything that you know that we might be interested in, or something you haven't seen before, make sure you send it our way. You can contact us very easily. Uh, how, How can people get at you on Twitter? facebook
0: um at at, at neapolis mg is uh our twitter and if you go to <clears throat> Tpoc, i've consolidated uh two princes and the king and the mg into the Tpoc site so if you go t p a a k dot com slash nmg and, and everybody that's in emg all the links for rob and chuck for uh the long podcast the ocelli effect debunked blog by zach and trish fleming gendro um <clears throat> And also uh, links for Charles Cliff and Matthew Shuffley's blog. So, you know, come on by, and then you can check out the book, check out the primary evidence collections that I've added to. We've got hundreds of new pieces of evidence, not only from the new stuff here, but some of the older files, too, when I come across them. So, yeah, uh, check out that. Of course, listen to The Lone Gunman Podcast, and I'll have to hear from everybody soon. Yeah,
1: and you can find me on Facebook. If you just search for The Lone Gunman Podcast, You'll find the show page, and uh, I can be reached through there or on Twitter at TLG underscore podcast on Twitter. Um, that's it, people. If somebody's in the can, beamed up the satellite down directly to your ears, people. This is your boy. Peace.
0: Ma che salù, se Laurent Di Patrioto. Ti va reponare tuo telefono, sinon io vete fer sottile che